The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, joined as always by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And this is our last episode of our season, although there will be only a short break between this last episode and the next season. So, wrapping up this five, six-month season that we have had by looking back a bit at some of the conversations we've had and some of the themes that we have touched upon. As always, just for those of you who are potentially new to listening to this, this is our attempt on a weekly basis to look at the world through a lens of, yep, you guessed it, what could go right, rather than the chronic contemporary lens of everything that's going wrong. And we do this, as we have said, ad infinitum, and we'll say ad infinitum in the future, not in any way to negate or downplay all the crappy things that are happening in the world at any given moment, but as a way of saying that juxtaposed to all those crappy things, are a lot of wonderful, inspiring, compelling things and people and ideas that we hope, trust, and plan to shape our future more than all the crappy things. Maybe that should be the new title of our podcast could be Things Don't Suck As Much As You Think. But it, this is an attempt to say how you look at your present and what you think and believe about your future does have an intimate relationship to what that future is going to be, that we are all, as it were, in the process of writing our future and that how we write that matters. And that if you write your future through the lens of intense pessimism and negativity, there's a collective ability to talk yourselves into the very things that you fear most. I don't think we're the first things to say this. We're not the first to believe it. It is hard to prove absolute causation between contemporary attitudes and future outcomes, but this is predicated on, I think, a pretty strong foundation of how you frame your problems and your ability to solve them has a lot to do with whether or not you're able to solve them. So, hence why what could go right in a world where we are all focused and tend to be focused on everything that's going wrong. So, Emma, what do you think were some of the more compelling themes that we talked about over the past, I think, 18 episodes? All right, so I'm going to go forward on the things suck, but maybe they don't suck as much as you think they do, or they don't suck as much as they could part of the uh, intro. So I was thinking today a lot about our episode with Steve Inskeep, and he's an NPR anchor, 
and he had written a book about Lincoln. And what he mentioned on the podcast that I found really striking, which is, it was an answer to a question that you had where we are a little bit obsessed, a little bit less now than we were during Trump's presidency. But we are definitely still in this era of asking and making parallels between the 1850s and like, are we headed for a civil war question, right? I don't think at this moment that we're heading for a civil war. I don't see how that would happen. The reason being is that I don't really understand what it would be about. In the 1850s, there was this dispute over slavery, which was not only human bondage for 4 million people, as if that wasn't enough to argue about. It was really an entire economic and social system of a large part of the United States, an economic and social system that the rest of the United States benefited from in different ways, even if they didn't participate in it. And so there were enormous, enormous questions about who belonged in society and who didn't, how the economy should be organized or not, who should call the shots or who not. There, there were enormous questions to wrestle with. And even though we have profound differences today, it's hard to see them as that same kind of division just because so much of it is propaganda and performance and attitude and cultural touchstones and preferred media all of which become real in a sense. I mean, they mean something to voters and they drive elections and they drive our divisions and how we feel. But would that many people really take up arms, millions of people take up arms to fight about them? I don't see that yet. I mean, the possibility of political violence, yes. Uh, I mean, that's always with us. And in fact, some kind of political violence is, you know, almost any given year, you could find something that would fall into that category in America. There could be more, there could be less. I'm not worried about a civil war in that sense. It was so striking to me because I feel like when I think about fear and the atmospheres of fear that I think Trump in particular engenders in a lot of people, particularly on the left in the United States, we end up talking about that fear without also taking in in a sober-minded way the sort of constraints of reality, right? Like what... <laughs> Like, as you say a lot, you know, our, our fears of the future might come true, but we sometimes don't adequately take into account what would be the barriers to that along the way. And are, do these fears that, we're, that are kind of occupying our mind and taking up so much of our energy, do they even really make sense? Yeah, I mean, I was struck as well, uh, both in our conversation with Steve Inskeep and last scenes in, in our conversation with John Avalon, who also wrote a book about the prelude to the Civil War. Uh, that, look, the 1850s in particular has gotten somewhat more prominent in our contemporary mindset, um, just like as I joked about with Jared Cohen in my interview with him, Grover Cleveland is suddenly weirdly relevant to Donald Trump, given that he's the only other person who ran for office, lost, came back, and won another non-consecutive term. But you know, the 1850s is a kind of harbinger of the most violent, divisive, existential crisis the United States has actually ever faced. And you have an emotional climate today that clearly has echoes of that. But whether you have a structural one or whether or not we're kind of overdoing it, I mean, certainly from Inskeep's book and I think from our conversation and certainly from my own historical perspective, there's nowhere near the kind of divisiveness today that, that marked that period of time. You know, there isn't like 
active willingness to fight to the death, literally, or kill for some of these things. I mean, I'm sure that's true for some people, right? But that's always true for some people at any given time in any society. I don't even think we're as divisive as we were in 18 in 1968. You know, that was a that was a big question in the summer of 2020 with the the riots and George Floyd and the kind of tumult of, of pandemic land, whether or not we were coming apart at the seams, the way people felt in 1968 in that sort of radical summer before the Democratic Convention and Johnson stepping down and Kennedy and Martin Luther King getting assassinated. And this is where I do think history is helpful in that before one gets too hyperbolic about the present, it does bear to remember how things have been in the past and how we have muddled through or navigated or not, as the case may be. And I, I agree. I think Inskeep's book was a reminder of, yes, things can spin out of control in a way that leads to war and death and fighting. But the conditions for that are pretty unusual and extreme. And we shouldn't be quite so quick to go down that path of fear. Right. And there's no, you know, his other point was there's not an economic system like slavery that we're trying to dismantle, right, when it comes to Trump and, and the fears around that and the fear around violence. The other thing that I want to bring up in relation to this is actually happening in Greece right now, I think, I think is an interesting story that goes along this idea of, and sometimes the unexpected happens, which is that when Mitsotakis, he's the prime minister of Greece, he's center-right. When he was reelected, I had a very emotional conversation with a friend of mine who was saying she's really concerned in particular about the gay community in Greece, how they're treated, particularly on the right, particularly because it is an Orthodox Christian country, and that she was really upset when Mitsotakis got reelected. And I was telling her, like, look, I, I'm not saying you need to be pro-Mitsotakis, but, you know, he did indicate that he was going to pass legislation for gay marriage in his second term. There are signs that that wasn't just lip service because, first of all, he's on the right, so there's no really need for him to say that unless he he means it. And second of all, Mitsotakis is no no fool, and he sees where the EU is going as a whole. He sees, I'm sure, that there are legal cases being made in the European Courts of Human Rights, where the European Courts of Human Rights is telling EU member countries that don't have gay marriage or that they that don't have at least civil partnerships that they're going to have to make sure that all their citizens have equality, you know, to stay in the EU. And he kind of saw where the wind is going. And, and much like this conversation that we had with Steve Inskeep about Lincoln being very shrewd and making tactical decisions, I think Mitsutaki saw an opportunity here where he can get his country in line with the greater EU policies. And it's politically expedient for him because I think he thinks he can control the costs on the right. And it kind of sticks it to the left here because they're having their own kind of breakdown right now about having elected their first gay party leader. The left is different than the left in the U.S. They're not sort of pro forma gay rights. So they elected their first gay leader and that kind of led to all these divisions in the party. So it's a good moment for Mitsotakis to be like, I'm going to, you know, burnish my credentials as a moderate voice of both the right and the left. Greece legalized same-sex marriage on Thursday, making it one of the first Orthodox Christian countries to allow them. The country's parliament approved the bill, with more than two-thirds of its 254 lawmakers voting yes. And I say that whole story, you know, I 
people not, might not be that interested in what's going on in Greece right now, but I say the whole story in that, again, it behooves us to think about not just the facts that are like pro our fears, but the facts that are anti and to analyze them in this kind of cool headed way. Right. The fact that things often surprise for the best and not for the worst. And when you're in a good mood, you, you, you somewhat expect those surprises. You're like, oh, things will be fine. But when you're in a bad mood individually or culturally, it seems inconceivable that things could actually get better or improve or that people could surprise you by following, and we'll shout back at Inskeep and Avalon, as Lincoln said, the better angels of our natures, right? And, you know, that's, that is there. We tend to lose sight of it. And, you know, you just, I mean, look, Greece, at the time of 2011, when they were potentially going to be crashed out of the European Union because of the debt crisis, and you had the rise of the far right, like kind of the neo-Nazi far right in Greece, there was a palpable fear that that would be the next government, you know, a kind of government that would make Marine Le Pen and the French far right look totally moderate by comparison. What were they, the Golden Dawn? Was that the name of the party? Golden Dawn, the infamous Golden Dawn slap. Yes, <laughs> not the right. Will Smith slap. But I mean, they, you know, they were like getting double digit figures of the vote and in a mm -hmm. fractured coalition. That was 11 years ago or 12 years ago. So I try to remind people of it's, a, it's astonishing how quickly things can change, both from good to bad and bad to good. And in the summer of 18, 1989, there were plenty of people at Moscow State University getting their degrees in, in Marxist-Leninist thought who thought that they had bright careers <laughs> ahead of them <laughs> as apparatchiks of a stolid, maybe crumbling, but still stable empire. And that evaporated pretty quickly, much more quickly than people would have thought. And I just think, you know, things change. It never feels like they're going to change when you're in the middle of it, but, but they really do. Sometimes for yeah. the worse, for sure, but often for the better. Yeah, and there are real comebacks. I wish people would talk a little bit more about Poland right now. They had that wild, unexpected outcome where they got rid right. of the, the party in, in power that was super far right and, in fact, changing the, the laws of the game. And also people might not know that um, Jair Bolsonaro, you know, there were so many January 6th comparisons made at the time of the, the riot in Brazil when he lost his reelection. Well, guess what? They just confiscated his password. Password. His, they just confiscated he can't, his password. He can't get into his any of his password. computer accounts. <laughs> Gmail locked him out. It's really serious. Uh, they confiscated his passport. He's facing probes um, into that kind of whatever the word is, uprising, coup, riot that happens. And he's politically ineligible till 2030. I'm sure people are listening to this thinking like, oh, that's the dream. But anyway, there are the, you know, these things that are happening around the world that um, might probably deserve a bit more applause, you know? Or this week, the election in Pakistan. I mean, this week, meaning as we're recording this, there was an election in Pakistan where to the surprise of, I think, almost everybody, including the opposition party that was nominally led by Imran Khan, who's in prison and on trumped up charges and ineligible to run, but his party won the most seats in the parliamentary elections. Now, I mean, they didn't end up forming a government and things are still incredibly messy, but nobody predicted that particular outcome. And, you know, whatever you feel about Imran Khan, that outcome in Pakistan was definitely an efflorescence of youth democracy, full stop. Like, there's no other way mm -hmm. to read that. 
And we just, this week as well, again, we're recording this the week of Valentine's Day week in, in the U.S. Indonesia had the largest democratic election in the world. It was orderly, peaceable, spread out over 200 plus million people and thousands of candidates. And you know, whether you think the, uh, the outcome was or was not the best outcome, it was clearly the most functional Muslim democracy in the world. So two Two, the two largest independent Muslim countries in the world went to the polls. Do you know that they dress up? Yeah, no, no, they they wear lots of really funky, funky election day costumes, almost Mardi Gras esque yeah. in Indonesia. Yeah, I, I think didn't we know should that dress up recently. to vote. Don't you think? Like, you know, I, I think it's still like the cutest thing ever. When I read that article, you know, it was like they're really happy that they have a democracy after you know the dictatorship in what the seventies. And so they're like dressing up like superheroes and stuff at the polls and the, the election workers do that. And I'm like, that's that's definitely what we need in the U.S., which, Absolutely. by the way, the Pew Research Center did just come out with a poll about how Americans feel about elections right now. And one of the, the most popular thing was to make Election Day a national holiday. And that could totally go along with the superhero Mardi Gras costume thing. I'm down. Absolutely. Note to self, right to your <laughs> congressperson. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with everything everywhere daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Ever Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. So what's another theme we touched upon that we, that we should hearken back to? I think we should talk, although it's, it's such a painful topic, to go back to our episode with Ian Bremmer on the Israel-Palestine conflict because it's definitely one 
that is ongoing and just so much disappointment around the U.S.'s and the sort of coalition of Middle Eastern states to really get anything done yet as far as a ceasefire and a peace deal. Sentiments are very, very low right now about the possibility of that happening. This is the worst violence against Jews that we've seen anywhere in the world since the Holocaust. After a lot of us have ignored the Palestinian issue for a long time, that's a really big deal. That's a really big deal. We're kind of asleep at the switch. I, I think people need to understand that there's a bank shot on both of these narratives, right? I mean, look, lots and lots of Palestinians are going to die, Palestinian civilians, and they're going to die because Israel is engaged in a military campaign in Gaza. That is the reality. But then there's the second order reality that we need to understand, which is that Hamas is taking assertive actions to put those civilians at risk through bombs that don't work, but they'll set them off anyway, through misinformation on, you know, sort of campaigns on they're about to bomb. No, they're not. You stay where you are on putting your military equipment and your leadership right where the civilians are. You cannot say that the Israelis are bombing the Palestinians and they're the ones that are wholly responsible. You have to hold Hamas complicit. Then you have the other bank shot, which is Hamas engages in terrorist attacks against Israel, which is completely unacceptable and they must be condemned. And that's absolutely right. But the reality is that Israel has refused to deal with the situation of basic human rights for Palestinians especially in Gaza, for decades now. They've been ignoring it, and that's led to greater radicalization. And it's not like the Palestinians have the weapons that would allow them to fight against the IDF. They don't. The Israel, so yes, the ha Hamas targets civilians, but the alternative to targeting civilians is surrender. And so there's a bank shot there. Look, when you're involved in both of these second-order meta-conversations, about Israel. Nobody wants to have those conversations. We want a hero and we want a villain. And it's very easy for me to say Hamas is the villain because terrorists are villains. And I think Hamas should be destroyed. I believe that. I want them gone the same way I wanted Al-Qaeda gone. But, but that's not the whole story. It's not even close to the whole story. It, it might not even be 10% of the whole story. The whole story. So we talked to him right before the full Israeli invasion of Gaza. They were bombing, but they hadn't yet gone in. And we did, we did talk in that episode about a couple of things. One was just how ill-fated Biden's literal bear hug embrace of Netanyahu right after October 7th would prove to be, which was clear at the time. And, and, you know, we, Ian concluded, and I think we all agreed that given the optics of the moment, it's not really that Biden had much of a choice. He'd gone to Jerusalem and, you know, that was, he was going to show full support for Netanyahu as Israel's leader, not necessarily as Netanyahu. And it was planning to go to Jordan and bring the whole region into some sort of concord. And then the, the hospital got bombed and the Arab leaders called off their meeting with Biden. So it just ended up being a one-sided embrace that seemed to be American policy for the next months and to many people seemed still to be American policy and that that would create just immense problems for the region, for the United States. But the other thing we did talk about with Ian that's proved to be true was that 
there wasn't much evidence of the rest of the Arab world spinning out of control per se. Yes, there's been a lot of collateral military actions with the Houthis, with the United States striking back against various Iranian-funded groups in Syria, Jordan, and Iraq. But for the most part, the Arab world and other governments have not, certainly not sided with or you know, this has not become another let's gang up on Israel from the Arab world perspective. Maybe that's cynical. You know, obviously they are abandoning the Palestinians in most fashion. But, in, you know, in many ways, this is the conflict got much worse than we had. It got about as bad as we feared when we talked to Ian, but mm -hmm. it, meaning the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians and, and the damage that Israel would do in, in invading Gaza. But it has not gotten worse in its sort of geopolitical regional sense. I mean, yes, it has gotten worse in the Houthis and the Red Sea and all of that. But relative to the kind of spinning out of control one might have thought, it has not done any of that. Yeah, Qatar and UAE are in there trying to negotiate terms for the, for the peace deal. So, yeah, I think As you are right about that. As is Egypt, yeah. That goes along with, you know, something I had in mind, which was this article from Vox by Joshua Keating. And he was talking about the struggle right now to kind of define the world order and this feeling that people have, particularly around Israel, Palestine and Ukraine, that there is no world order. Right. And he sort of put forth this thesis called neo-medievalism, that we are in a time of declining state power. And that has its downfalls, right? Like it, as I talked about with the peace deal, it's there. And as you're saying with, you know, Biden's hug of Netanyahu, like the U.S. is not really throwing its weight around, I think, in a way that they might have 30 years ago or possibly could right now if we really wanted to. And that means th that there is more disorder. Like there are definitely flashpoints of intense conflict in places, but there is a very low appetite of big state powers going to war and i think he's right about that you know even russia you know he made the point that yes russia invaded ukraine but when there was a national conscription that putin put out seven hundred thousand people fled the country and this you know we talked about this in the previous season with jessica weiss that we, uh, we would be hard-pressed to imagine a lot of people in the United States willing to go to war with China over Taiwan. I think on the same token, it's difficult to imagine a lot of Chinese people really wanting to jump into that military boat, even if it's forced. It's, there's just a, a strong lack of will for going to war in these like big state power ways. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, there are people who have been keeping sort of statistics of conflicts and violence over the past 40 years, intrastate and interstate, and those numbers have gotten worse in the past three or four years than they were for the 15 years prior. But they're a whole lot better than they were for most of the 20th century. You know, it's, it's a little like when we talked about, and we've talked about a few times on these episodes about crime and crime rates. Undoubtedly, crime got worse, 21, 22 in the United States post-pandemic or in pandemic than it was 2017, 18, 19, 20. And in a few places like Washington, D.C., they remain pretty bad. But they've also improved markedly over the past two years. They're just not as good as they were. 
Right. And this is part of the cup half full, cup half empty. What lens do you look at the world through? There's certainly never been a time when humanity has been at peace with itself, with each other, with our neighbors, with tribes that we don't agree with. The intensity of that conflict has waxed and waned. We are legitimately focused on what's going on in Gaza, what's going on in eastern Ukraine, what's, but we're not as focused about what's going on in Khartoum and Sudan, which is way worse than either of those mm-hmm. things, just in terms of lives and displacement. So we are still, mm-hmm. as it were, globally selective about what we pay attention to when we think about conflict. In those years when we thought things were more peaceable, they, they were not peaceable in large swaths of sub-Saharan Africa or Myanmar. So, I mean, I, I do think there's a degree to which we, we remain selective about what we care about. Some of that's tribal affiliation. Some of that's proximity. Right? Ukraine matters a whole lot more to Germany than Sudan does. And maybe that's totally legit, right? It's what's in, what's in your back door matters more than what's very far away. But we shouldn't allow that to obscure a, a bigger picture, right? Which is that a vast portion of the planet lives at a level of kind of security and peace that would have been historically unusual. You know, we're not really neo-feudal. We might be neo-feudal in that there's no governing imperial power to prevent localized conflict. But we, most societies live with a lot more rule of law and not of man, human man, than was true in any feudal period. You know, we don't have total promiscuous use of power. Maybe you do in North Korea, right? But mm. looking for exceptions does not invalidate the rule. Yeah. Well, I think um, if people are interested, they can go check out the article. And I agree with what you said. That, And he says this in the article, too, that there are limits to the to the comparison. But it's one way to think about... It's, it's, a, it's a weird silver lining to the fragmentation of society. That was kind of his take, where these big countries just lack the social cohesion for all-out war. Something that we usually amend, like, oh, fragmenting U.S. society. But it is true. Like, I think he points out that less than... of people in the U.S. were involved with the Iraq war. It's just something that's on the periphery of society. And as you're saying, we do live in the rule of law now most of the time, most places, and would love to see war get continually pushed to the periphery. And and, and even what's going on in the Middle East now, right? When people are talking about, is this going to metastasize into a regional war? Mm -hmm. That question always lacked the, who's going to fight whom? What's going on right now with the Houthis occasionally lobbing missiles across the Red Sea and interrupting shipping and militia groups funded by Iran and or Shia groups in Iraq lobbing drones and or various deadly projectiles at Americans and others in the Middle East and Hezbollah and Israeli forces exchanging missiles and or helicopter fire. That's what a regional war spreading looks like. It doesn't look like massed armies a la the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 or the U.S. invasion of Kuwait in 1990-91. Those were big wars involving hundreds and hundreds of thousands of troops on both sides. Or the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s, right? There's no, as you just said, there's no appetite, let alone really cause or reason for that kind of conflict at that kind of scale, which makes the Russian invasion of of Ukraine such a contemporary anomaly, you know, a large, well-armed state actually invading another country 
mm-hmm. and then not doing so well. But like that's that's highly unusual in the world today. And sure, you could say, well, it's a harbinger of a world that's falling apart, and now we're going to see more and more of that. You know, maybe future fears are just that. Like until they happen, they haven't. So it's another episode that bears recall. So I would like to talk about Jigger Shaw's episode. I really liked this episode a lot. I love hearing about people that are doing doing the stuff every day, you know, with climate change rather than kind of freaking out. They're just actually like, oh, let's just jump into this thing and solve the problem. And Jigger Shaw, let's for those who those who may not have listened to the episode, mm-hmm. Jigger is the director is his title of the U.S. Loan Office in the Department of Energy. So he's the guy that's going to these companies that are developing the climate technology, the green technology that needs to be boosted and that we all want in our lives in the future and helping them make that happen with some government cash. And I think as we pointed out in that episode, on the face of it, that particular title in the government is not the most prominent, obvious one. And yet, because of the vagaries of legislation and funding, these guarantees back up hundreds of billions of dollars of project finance for innovative energy companies leading to both energy independence and a less carbon intensive future. So it's one of these like things that go on in government that you largely are unaware of whose impact is way disproportionate to the attention that they receive, right? So the impact of these programs is massive. The attention they receive is minor. And the amount of capital that it requires is less significant, meaning they are responsible for projects that will lead to hundreds of billions of dollars, but they're not actually spending hundreds of billions of dollars. They're loaning billions that, that will both, if, if done well, will actually make money for the government, right? Yes, there have been a few spectacular failures and those during the Obama administration, like the funding of Solyndra, the famous you know energy company mm-hmm. that went new new green energy went co- company that went belly up. So there's not it's not riskless use of money, but there's almost nothing that is riskless use of money. But if most of these go well, we'll actually make money for the government. These are like loan yeah. guarantees for companies that'll be profitable. That's the idea. That's the idea. And I mean, that's the we'll, idea. We'll see. <laughs> we will see. You know. I'll, he had a couple good examples during the episode of what you're talking about, too. On top of like people don't really know what the loan office in the Department of Energy is doing. He mentioned this one example of like even further down the chain, right? This organization called ASTM, they set the standards for things like cement. And he was like, nobody knows that they just changed the standard for uh, to allow, you know, innovative cement solutions to be legal, right? Like, Things that happened in Washington that absolutely no one wrote a news article about. Maybe one person, right? in like the policy journals, but those things matter. And that was the other like big takeaway for me from the conversation of how much of of this stuff, even if there's an administrative turnover, are kind of like baked into the system that they're going to happen no matter what, because there are all these little changes occurring at different levels of government, money flowing, bipartisan support, you know, both from a government perspective and from a private business perspective of clean energy. So it's happening. I feel like it's happening, guys. 
you know, some of the largest investors in carbon sequestration and storage technologies are the oil and gas industry. They don't want that to go away. Some of the largest investors in battery technologies are large Republican donors, right? And so most of the factories that are being announced today are being announced in districts that have elected Republicans, right? And those folks are at the ribbon cuttings and they want those jobs to be created, right? So I get the rhetoric and, you know, and I, I'm not turning that sound off. Like I understand it. I hear it. But when you look at what we really want to do as Americans is we want to have our technology commercialized here. For decades, we sent it to China on purpose for them to commercialize it. I think there's bipartisan support not to have it commercialized there, but instead to commercialize it here by tying it to the American worker. As, as I, I'm sure Jigger would say, off record, there's a lot. If you do stuff in 2024 and then there's a change of administration for next year, some of the momentum of these programs could certainly be halted or the focus could be shifted in ways that you know may or may not be productive. And there's ample room for corruption in these programs, although they are certainly bounded by laws and guardrails about due diligence, which no particular administration could easily just run roughshod over no matter how much they may want to. But as you say, there's a lot of this that's baked in to just how the bureaucracy functions. And while both of us, and certainly I have been increasingly uncomfortable with the bureaucratization of both the administrative state and regulations, this is an example of them doing things quite well. Mostly because it's saying, hey, we'll just, we'll pick, we'll find really innovative, good companies and support them. The regulatory framework is a much more, not hostile, but is a much more contested one where you essentially assume the companies you're regulating are doing wrong and you're trying to stop them as opposed to a loan mm-hmm. guarantee program where it kind of assumes that the companies that you're looking at are doing right and you're trying to help them. And I wonder if there's some way of marrying those two equally legitimate instincts, which is you, you, want, you want government to be a collective use of our energies in a productive way. And you want government to be a collective use of our guardrails in a, you know, making sure society functions in a balanced way. I wonder if those two things could be a little more brought together so that you're not just in a regulatory framework that is that 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 treats the industry that it's regulating with hostility, and then you have other parts of the government that treats the industry that you're supporting with favor. Well, that's the big bugaboo with people that want housing being built right on the left like their whole thing is that there's so many environmental regulations that put a stranglehold on construction and permitting and zoning and this and the other thing that it's almost impossible to get something built like there's like these massive forget you know Mitt Romney's binders full of women there's binders full of environmental regulations which on the face of it sound like a good idea but there are a lot of people I know that would love to have a cheaper home that they could buy if we could just build more houses easier. So, Build more houses. Build more houses. So, so do we have a final conversation we want to look at? So final conversation and coming around full circle here to the U.S. presidential elections that we just can't get enough of talking about. Wanted to give a quick mention before we move on to some of our good news of our recent episode with Adrian who is the Secretary of State of Arizona, running elections there. And I wanted to come back in particular to the conversation that you had with him, a little bit of a mini debate, it was nice, about why he is so adamant about 
making sure that people know that Arizona uses paper ballots. What we're doing is really sort of coming back to basics. At the end of the day, that's what this is really all about. We have always voted on paper ballots here in Arizona. We're going to continue to do that. That piece of paper is the physical manifestation of the voter's intent to vote. Uh, We can preserve and protect that system, and we can preserve and protect those ballots. So yeah, he he was clear that paper ballots are the way to go. And I definitely know a number of people involved in election reforms who are total technophiles and digerates who are highly suspicious of making voting more digital because they fear that the the security of digital voting can be compromised in a way that the security of paper voting cannot. I mean, you can create procedures where there's there's it's extremely hard to mess around with paper ballot results. And there are definitely scenarios where you can mess around with digital ballot results. Although, again, as I discussed with Adrian Fontes, this is a an ongoing debate, right? It, we clearly are able to make our financial transactions digitally secure enough that almost all of our financial transactions are now digital, right? I can do this without fear that my my money is going to be hacked or my passwords. And I think his pushback was your contract with the bank is your contract with the bank, but voting is a public good. And, you know, unless one can say 100% that you can't mess around with this, you can't hack it, you can't corrupt it, that, that the paper ballot is the, even in a highly digital age, is the most secure and trust creating way of running elections. And, you know, on this one, I'm not, I, I'm not at all dogmatic. I hope I'm not dogmatic about anything in particular, but I, I think it's a legitimate pushback. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting one in a world where everything is digital to say there are certain things that not only should be analog, but must be. And I would say that's probably true of, you know, certainly true of interpersonal relationships, right? There has to be a physical, like you meet someone physically, you don't just live digitally. So the idea that maybe there's this thing called voting that is both a public demonstration, you mentioned Indonesia, where it becomes a public, not just a, a paper thing, but a public demonstration of democracy, that we're physically in a space doing something that reaffirms that this is who we are. And I think Adrian talked somewhat about that as well, right? That there's a, it's not performative, it's an actual like human beings physically engaged in this activity jointly means something. And the yeah. trust in it and the demonstration of it means something much more than I pick up my phone or my computer and I push a button, which doesn't necessarily mean anything and is certainly not collective and is certainly not communal. I totally get that and totally respect that. I just think maybe it's, it's worth pursuing the idea that there's another digital aspect that we could use and help more people vote. The act of voting is a collective act by its very nature. The reason that we have elections is because we have differing points of view and we have to come to a common decision. It is one of the only spaces that we have where everyone's voice coming together actually produces a singular result. 
that then has an impact on everybody else. I mean, unless it's like the church choir, right? Then your voice and everybody else's uh, work together too. So, but for, from a civic responsibility perspective, it's like you owe this you owe this act to your community. You're making a decision for everyone, not just for you. It's different with taxes. It's different with mortgages. It's different with all of the rest of the things. You're making the decision for yourself, and only you have to suffer the consequences of a bad decision. Well, that's what's kind of interesting about this is that the U.S. did, I looked into this for a newsletter. After we had that conversation, I was kind of intrigued about it. And somebody wrote in and particularly to do a newsletter edition on like, how do we know that we can trust the voting machines that we use? And I thought to myself, like, how can we trust? How do we know that we can trust the voting machines that we use, right? Like not coming from it, like, from a conspiracy theory perspective or a, the election was stolen perspective, but just a simple, like, I've never stopped and asked myself that, right? So did some research and the U.S. actually went into this more electronic route, not from your phones. Uh, by the way, Estonia is the only country that has kind of tried to do a digital election like that and it went really poorly. So we're just not in the space for the technology, I think, to work well enough to be resistance against cyber attacks and foreign adversaries and so on and so forth. But anyway, after the hanging Chad debacle, the U.S. had a bunch of states get electronic voting machines that did not have any paper record at all. So most people in the states at that time were using hand-marked ballots. Some of them were using like those punch cards that caused the uh, hanging chad debacle. And New York at the time was even using mechanical lever machines, which I thought was such a fun fact that that was still being used as late as 2000. So anyway, there was this big move to to use electronic voting machines because they were a quote-unquote clearer result than some of these paper options that would leave these little pieces of paper hanging off the, the punch. What they found after that was that these electronic voting machines were vulnerable to hacking because there was no paper trail in particular. Like if there was a question that arose after the fact or God forbid at that time, if there had been optics about, you know, elections being rigged and so on and so forth, there was no way to verify it other than just trusting that the computer itself did what it was supposed to do. And they do run checks, you know, they run checks on these machines before and after the elections. There's lots of processes in place around them, but still there was no paper, there was no paper trail that you could verify. The U.S. started moving away from that pretty quickly. So the only state that uses those machines exclusively is Louisiana, and they are actually changing that. They're, not, they're probably not going to be able to do it by the time 2024 rolls around for the election, but they're going to do it as soon as they can. And in, 2020, in the 2024 election, nearly every American voter is going to be voting either handmarked ballots or on a machine that has a paper trail. So there's been like a decidedly paper forward move that has happened in the U.S. in the last 20 years. So I think you might be a chorus of one, Zachary. I'm sorry. Oh, well, it won't <laughs> be the last time. I, uh, I do think it's protected. Like the, it's protective. It, it works in a practical sense, right? Like you can't hack a handmarked ballot. Yes. But also in, as far as the trust and the optics go, I think it's a very good protective mechanism. Yep. All right. This, I mean, this may be something where the physical and the analog is simply unequivocally preferable to and a better manifestation of democracy than digital. But I guess we will see what a subsequent generation feels about that as most mm -hmm. of their lives 
are lived in some sense digitally, not most, but a, a large portion of their lives are lived digitally. So will this be an exception to that or will we envelop all of this into that in some way that we can't quite yet envision? That's a state. Maybe tuned. they're stay tuned. And I think there is some pushback happening to that already. Like Gen Z apparently isn't on the dating apps anymore. They're like, ew, swiping. Wow. You know? So there's some <laughs> there's some return to the past going on here. That may be good. Ew swiping world. might be a good thing. So that's our wrap-up, I think, of the season. Are you ready to talk about some good news items? I'm ready to talk about some good news items. We'll be right back after this break. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. Hit us. Hit us with the good news. Hit us with the good news. I'm going to talk a little bit about our newsletter this week, this week of Valentine's that we're recording. So it's last week by the time everyone's going to be listening to this because... It's a really cool tech story. It's also oddly wholesome. It's very heartwarming. And that is the story of, let me not butcher this name because every time I say it out loud, I do, the Herculaneum Papyrus Scrolls. So this- The sister city to Pompeii. Essentially, there was this massive villa that was owned by Julius Caesar's father-in-law. It got hit by the Vesuvius eruption, but the temperature of the volcanic plumes of gas were just right to kill everyone immediately that was alive, but carbonize the papyrus scrolls that were in this villa in this big library. It's the only surviving library from antiquity, and because the temperature was just right, the scrolls got carbonized, then buried by this mud flow, which sort of like sealed the scrolls so that what was written on them was preserved. They discovered this villa in 1750, and since then, they've been trying to be able to read the scrolls because they think that there might be unknown works by Sophocles, Sappho, Aristotle, all the big names. could be a massive discovery. There's 800 full scrolls that they've excavated, and then there's, they think there might be thousands or, and even tens of thousands of scrolls remaining still in the villa and the parts that they haven't excavated. But because these things were like, you know, charred logs carbonized stuck together you can't unroll them when you unroll them they just sort of crumble and get broken and fragmented and um no one's been able to to figure out what's actually on them until uh january basically what happened is that the the former chief executive officer of github nat friedman was bored at home during the pandemic the Bloomberg piece on this story mentions that his house had also just burned down. So like, I think he was in like a weird psychological state of mind. He teamed up with an investing partner and somebody from the University of Kentucky, a professor who had been working on the scrolls for 20 years, to offer this big cash prize to anybody that could figure out what was written on the scrolls. And essentially what they did was figure out this tech to 3D x-ray the scrolls take the information from the x-rays and these like tiny little scans and like flatten them out 
And then the winning team ended up developing a machine learning algorithm that can detect what they call crackle patterns. So it's like the dried out ink sticks up from the page and they start to detect like patterns in that that were Greek letters and Greek words. And they train the algorithm on it to, you know, learn that this is a the the P, this is a R, I should say in Greek, this is a Rho, you know? And anyway, after 275 years of failure, the tech tools that this internet army of nerds, as Bloomberg put it, which I loved, did in fact decode the first scroll. They, They decoded 12 columns from one of the scrolls, and it turns out that it is a text from a Greek philosopher, Philobibus, and it's about um, Philodemus is probably how you would anglicize that. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it's a it's a little treatise about pleasure, like what's pleasurable and what's not pleasurable. And it is really neat because now they have figured out the tech to figure out what's in all of the 800 scrolls that they have excavated, and potentially now there's might be more political appetite to go and get the rest of them at the villa, and there could be some really serious historical discoveries there. It's like the, um, you know, be careful spending all this money decoding something something you think is going to be the font of all wisdom, and it just turns out to be like a laundry list or a, yeah. <laughs> a, a shopping memo, you know. Please remember to pick up oranges on your way home, kind of thing. So at least it was a text of some interesting import, even if it was it, it fills out a little text about pleasure. I think counts as quite interesting. Well, they're definitely like you know the other words and stuff that they found on these scrolls are like capers and like purple. So there's definitely some <laughs> some of what you're describing. You know, it's a lot. It, these scrolls that they found were kind of like lying around the villa. They haven't actually found the main library yet. So imagine like it's, you know, your house gets buried in, by a volcano one day. And it's like we're finding these books that were just like hanging around in your living room. You know, the ones I have are certainly not the ones that are going to be <laughs> interesting to history. But the ones that are in the library might. The owner of the villa was a patron of Philodemus, Philodemus. And they think the the Apostle Paul had passed through the area recently, and they thought they think that there might be records of that visit. So hopefully, it's not just like I asked the servants to wash my toga today. Please don't dry clean. Oh dear. Anyway, it was a great yeah. story. You unearthed. Ha ha. ha. Sorry, bad pun. Yeah. And it was definitely one of these. Yes, it's quirky and it. I'm sure people will be like, why was that a good use of money? But excavating who we were, oh my God, another, another interview <laughs> is, 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 has its own well. worth to try to understand the arc of humanity and which we've been doing for a long time and probably should continue to do because it gives us some insight into who we were, who we are, and maybe some insight into who we will be, which is our own humble goal with this podcast so thank you all for going along with the ride for us for this particular set of episodes we'll be back in a few weeks with a another set of episodes throughout the remainder or most of the remainder of 2024 a year that promises to be sedate and calm and quiet in the united states and that we hope will we will be able to add a note of everyone take a deep breath 
take a step back from the brink and try to focus on other things than you might otherwise be focusing on. So I want to thank Emma for joining me on this particular trip and thank all of you for coming along. Please send us ideas for the next set of episodes, comments, critiques, maybe even a kudo or two if that occurs to you. Not that we need it, but you know, it's nice to add to the, the mix. And I hope this finds you all well. 100%. Thank you, Zachary. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Plug Glomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, the Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening.